Good morning. Uh, and of course, with that reading from Luke, Jesus has given us his sermon for the day, uh, which makes me wonder what I'm doing in the pulpit, <laughs> I have to confess. Um, but uh, uh, let me start with uh, giving us a little, just a little bit of context uh, for the sermon that Jesus preaches. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He stays there all night in prayer, alone with God. When the dawn comes, he calls his disciples to him, and from all his disciples, he chooses 12 to be apostles. They all come down the mountain to find a crowd of people from all over the region who have come to hear and be healed by Jesus. And Jesus teaches his disciples in the hearing of all the people. And of course, in our hearing through the gospel according to Luke. As packed as his sermon is, and we didn't hear all of it this morning, it's fairly easy to see what Jesus is doing. Redefining the way we live in the world. Now, this shouldn't surprise any of us. The ultimate telos, that is the goal, the end, the purpose of the gospel, is that the world is remade, renewed, and transformed. John in Revelation says that he looked and saw a new heaven and a new earth. In the hands of his true disciples, the world goes from a place where there are such things as rich and poor to a place where everyone hungry can eat and everyone who is weeping can laugh. From a place where we are suspicious of one another's motives to a place where strangers are treated as family from a place of judgment and condemnation of each other to a place of mercy and compassion. In the world of first century Judea, to live as a peasant meant that there was a very narrow margin between making ends meet and complete poverty. There were no social welfare programs, no healthcare system, no EI. The people who Jesus spoke with most in rural towns and villages didn't have much, but they did at least have the people that they knew. And part of peasant economics is lending and borrowing when someone has a surplus and when someone else is in dire need. There were social norms and rules that went with it, of course, if you borrowed from your close family, you may not be expected to repay the loan. But if it was a friend or acquaintance, then the giving was expected to be reciprocal. And there was always, in the ancient world, the concept of patronage, where the well-off with means to lend support to either a family or a community were in a position to expect service or some kind of honor in return. So while there was interdependence on community, it came with terms and conditions. 
And naturally, people were concerned with who was and who was not one of us. Someone who could be counted on to do their part. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As familiar as that is to us, there were lots of variations of this line back then, all of them known by the crowd hearing Jesus teach. But though he invokes a familiar saying, he also spins it into new territory. Don't expect anyone to do unto you. Even crooks love only people who love them. It will not mark you as my disciples. Even crooks lend money and expect to be repaid with interest, whether or not that person is able to. It is not how my disciples live. In effect, he says, if you call yourselves my disciples, then you will live as I live. And I live according to one simple rule. Love. It doesn't matter if they're your family. It doesn't matter if they're your friends. It doesn't matter if you hold a grudge against them or call them outsiders or even enemies. The rule of life for my disciples is love. In the words of one commentator, Jesus challenges people to accept the previously unacceptable as though they were family. There is a new economy, the economy of the kingdom of God. And the critical value in the kingdom is not reciprocity of giving, repaying favor for favor, but mercy in imitation of the Father who has given us everything and life itself. God himself is part of this economy who gives even to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus ends his sermon with three parables or images that at first glance seem to have little or nothing to do with what he's been talking about. Instead of illustrating the importance of love or doing good deeds, they're images that make us think about the importance of letting our character and our posture be shaped. The first image we're shown is of people who cannot see, either pretending or believing that they know the right way to go. Jesus unpacks this in terms of students and teachers. And we realize immediately not only how crucial it is to put our trust in the right people, but also how crucial it is to become aware of our own blindness before we can claim to help others see. The second image is of a tree and its fruit. The kind of fruit depends on the kind of tree. Or as Jesus interprets it, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We might try to lie or cover up what's inside us, but sooner or later, 
the truth of what we believe and what we prioritize will always come out. Jesus introduces the final image with himself and his own teaching. He is the faithful guide, the healthy tree. And whoever lives by his words will be like someone who took the time and trouble to build a house on a foundation. And instead of collapsing, that house will withstand even violent floods. These are parables then about my formation, what I will allow to guide my life. And from that, Jesus makes clear that what I choose to make my foundation impacts my way of being in the world. Jesus is redefining the way we live, which means transforming even me if I am willing to be transformed. Jesus emphasizes explicitly that he wants us to live his words, not just listen to them. But the parables also bring out the other side of that truth. My character and my actions are inseparable. The blind cannot lead the blind. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. To act without listening to Jesus is as disastrous as listening to Jesus without acting. Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican pastor and writer, recently published an article in the New York Times. She describes running into a mentor of hers, a Franciscan priest, just as she was heading into a ministry that supported undocumented immigrants. In her words, he looked at me and said, matter-of-factly, you do not have the life of prayer and silence necessary to sustain the work you are doing. I was a little insulted. What did he know? But over the course of the next two years, he was proved right. I simply did not have the spiritual rhythms and practices to cultivate the wisdom, humility, thoughtfulness, and rest my work required. I burned out quickly. So often when we think about Jesus, we also somehow think mostly of ourselves. We keep him private. We focus on our personal relationship with God, our own individual walk with Jesus. But we are made to be more than individuals. In the Bible's story of creation, the first human being was alone with God in the garden. God looked and said, it is not good for you to be alone. In the Bible's story of creation, we are made as a reflection of God's nature, God's authority, and God's relationship. For God is a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Like God, humanity is an interweaving of distinct persons and unified community. 
None of which means that we don't each have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it might change the way each of us thinks about that personal relationship. Even though we continue praying alone, reading the Bible alone, journaling alone, and spending devotional time alone. If you're anything like me, you also have a nagging idea that all these spiritual disciplines are meant to contribute to some kind of spiritual success. That they get you right before God and enable you to say, I have a good spiritual life. This, you might think, is their primary function, to bring you inner peace. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He stays there all night in prayer, alone with God. When the dawn comes, he calls his disciples to him. And from all his disciples, he chooses 12 to be apostles. They all come down the mountain to find a crowd of people from all over the region who have come to hear and be healed by Jesus. And Jesus teaches his disciples in the hearing of all the people. Now, we're talking about Jesus here. Not only the Son of God, but the incarnation of God himself and a person of the Trinity. So I don't dare presume that his prayer time looks anything like mine or yours. But even so, in this movement from communion with God to ministry for others, we see Jesus acting out of his character. He is not on the mountain because he wants to achieve anything, but because of his love for the Father and the Spirit. And the love he receives from the Father and the Spirit, he passes on to his disciples, to the crowd, and to the world. Jesus' rhythm of life teaches me something valuable in a season where I find myself wondering what exactly I will do next. It teaches me this, that my personal relationship with God may not in the end be about me. What happens in the privacy of my heart may not, in the end, be all that private. Because what I choose to make my foundation shapes my way of being in the world with others. A couple of years ago, in the distant ancient era before COVID. Feels very long ago. <laughs> uh, I made the decision to have a more disciplined prayer life, mostly to cope with depression. So I came up with a morning and evening liturgy, uh, reciting bits of the Psalms and other prayers, trying to change the way I think about myself and even how I think about the world. Uh, believe it or not, I can sometimes be the most pessimistic, misanthropic, cynical person you've ever met. 
especially in the afternoons. Those are a bad time of the day. <laughs> uh, there are times when I genuinely just despise practically everything about our society and all its brokenness. But my morning prayers always end with a liturgy called the General Thanksgiving, which includes the line, I bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. And again, I am called to remember that however broken we may be, God has chosen to continually bless us with life. If I were left to pray from what's in my heart, it would be a very dark prayer. Instead, I try to bend to the shape of prayer that God himself has given to the church. As I listen to Jesus' sermon, I realize even better the value of letting myself be formed by prayer. If I cannot love myself, how can I expect to love others? If I cannot love, how can I call myself a disciple of Jesus? Because the ultimate test of all our theology and spiritual practices is love. We keep striving to do and serve and achieve, counting it as spiritual success. We are raised literally from birth on the idea that you must work hard to achieve for yourself. But in the kingdom economy, you are part of an us, the body of Christ, that balance and interweaving of the individual and the community. And success is not a word in the Christian vocabulary. In order to live in this economy, we must give up the idea that our personal relationships with Jesus are solely for our own spiritual benefit. Jesus orients us to each other. We are formed for the sake of other people so that we are all formed into the kingdom, a new kind of world. We're shortly going to celebrate communion, which is wonderful. Because although I've been talking about our individual formation, what I've said is equally true of communities. What we choose to make our foundation shapes our way of being in the world. Someone asked me just a few weeks ago, uh, what should church look like in the wake of COVID? And they were talking about the Sunday service, but of course what the church, capital C, should look like has never changed. Jesus. As in the parable of the two houses built in two different ways, it's usually periods of sudden and unexpected problems, like a global health crisis, that reveal character and priorities, that reveal what we've really built ourselves on. And for those of us who often think about and pay attention to the wider issues of the church in North America, it comes as no surprise 
to find Christian communities right now taking stock, finding their footing, and unfortunately, sometimes responding in ways that don't look anything like Jesus. We're sometimes Christians who choose to be more concerned with our power and influence in the world instead of our capacity for love and compassion, who measure ourselves by worldly standards of success rather than the heart of Jesus. And of course, I say we because I'm, I'm including myself. So communion is a chance to once again go deeper with our teacher. Not alone, but together. Because it's a natural law of the universe that moving closer to him is moving closer to each other. To love Jesus and the triune God is to love everyone else. Even as I am being formed by my own daily prayer, I look back on my life in Granville Chapel and can see myself being formed as part of this community. No one can spend over 30 years in a church without it becoming part of their own foundation. So as we come to the table, let's be reminded that in celebrating communion, we not only receive, once again, forgiveness, but we also offer ourselves to be rebuilt, renewed, and transformed on the body, the blood, and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The blind cannot lead the blind, but the Father who sees all will take us by the hand. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit, but the spirit who lives within us will gradually grow and begin to reveal itself, himself, I should say, in love, joy, and gratitude. A house built without a foundation cannot survive a storm but a life built on the mercy, acceptance, and self-sacrifice of the Son will last for eternity. Amen. Christine.